Welcome to North Star Big Book. My name is Carly Israel, and I am your host. My sobriety date is January 27, 1999, and I created this podcast simply to share the message of the big book. It completely changed my life. It always changes my life, and I hope it can help change yours. Okay. Okay, North Star Big Book listeners, I am so excited to have my new friend in the Big Book. Kyle, will you introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Kyle uh, Nations, and I'm a recovered alcoholic, and I live in Austin, Texas. I love hearing recovered alcoholic. And what is your sobriety date? My sobriety date is April 5th of 2015. Nice. Well, we are happy to have you. And this is one of the blessings, I think, of COVID is that we get to connect with people all over the world, really, yeah. and find lovers of the big book so we can help other people find what, what we love. Tell me what pages you chose and why. So I chose pages six through eight in, uh, in the book, which is in Bill's story. And um, I think Bill's story is probably my favorite. Yeah. You know, for years, I, I, I didn't, well... So I should also say my sobriety date is April 5th of 2015, but, and I wish I was the guy that came in and got sober on my first meeting, but I'm not that guy. I was in and out of of Alcoholics Anonymous for for about two decades uh, because I just, I simply wouldn't do the work and I wouldn't grasp uh, some of the truths that you find in the big book, especially uh, some of the details in Bill's story. What changed for you this time? (laughs) <laughs> wow. Uh, well, uh, what changed? Well, one thing that really, uh, uh, I guess, got me going was I ended up going to prison for a couple of years. And, um, and, and that happened because uh, over the years, I would go in and out of AA and my life uh, on the outside wasn't so bad. I, I had some success. I was educated. I had a lot of the stuff that didn't allow me to sort of have my ego deflated to a point where I became, you know, uh, as they say, the desperation of a drowning man. I, I, I didn't have the willingness. And so it took me getting three DWIs in two weeks <laughs> under the influence of alcohol and, and, uh, and medication to uh, and, and then going to prison to finally realize, you know, wow, this is really, really serious. But I would also say that uh, the other thing that happened was I was finally willing uh, not only to take a look at my, my uh, drinking, but also uh, at, the, at the ego, at the stuff that the steps really address. And that, I was never willing to do that. I always thought drinking was my only problem, and it wasn't. I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I've always heard that the steps are designed to get rid of the mental obsession and that, that each step has to rip a part of our ego off because the problem is me, right? The problem is not alcohol. Alcohol was my solution. And the problem is me. And the solution is a higher power is God. And so I can't get to God and God can't get to me because my ego in my, in my, all my junk is blocking me off and the right. steps help pull that junk out. So I'm so grateful that you found what you found and I'm excited. You know, Bill's story is one of those stories that when I read it, I feel uncomfortable every time because Mm -hmm. he 
it's like when you're in the dentist chair and something's wrong with your mouth, but you don't know what's wrong. And then they tap on that one tooth and you're like, oh, that's the one. That's how I feel when I read, especially these pages. I mean, my book, no one can see except for you, but it's all red here because <laughs> the red is underlined whenever we're talking about late stage, full-blown alcoholism. And right. what he's describing here that what you're going to read is alcoholism at the end. So let's get into it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just say there's a couple of things that really um, are in this particular part of his story really stand out. And that is the progression of the disease and the hopeless condition of mind and body, which you were just talking about. Yeah. And, um, and when I first read Bill's story, I didn't, I didn't relate to it. I, I didn't live in the thirties. I wasn't right. a stockbroker. I didn't, you know, I, I looked for all the things in Bill's story that were, that you were me. not right. Yeah. And now I read Bill's story and like, that's me. <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's such a great reminder is when you're new or you're not new and you're struggling is not to focus on what we are not, but to focus on what we can relate to. And for me, right. That's why when I lead, I don't give a huge drunk log. I talk about the feelings. I talk about what it felt like to look in the mirror and how much I hated myself. I don't talk about the outside stuff, you know, but when you introduce yourself as a recovered alcoholic and I am too, just to remind the listener, that is someone that no longer has a physical craving for alcohol because they're no, they no longer are putting alcohol in their body. So they cannot physically crave it if it's not in your body. And their mind is no longer telling them the lie that they need it. So yes. me and you are never able to successfully drink alcohol safely again. And but we we would be uh, immediately physically allergic, but we're not because we don't have it in our body. But our minds are free because of the steps. Right. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Let's let's start. Are we going to start in the first real paragraph? Uh, actually, yeah, I've got it up. I I've got the big book on my phone. I got it here. But look I, at I, you. I, I love I got it. There's no PDF, I got my PDF up here. So yeah. so let me let me go. It starts with the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms. Um, on page six, I believe it is. Well, you read the paragraph right before that because my that paragraph for me describes the gift of desperation so well that I want to yeah. get into that before you're about to read. Okay, so go ahead. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So it says the remorse and horror, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably. There was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly, hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale, my writhing nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. Two bottles and oblivion. So I just want to stop and say a few things here. So suicide is probably the number one symptom of untreated alcoholism. And you could have it whether you're drinking or whether you're dry or whether you're in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous not doing the work. I have buried more people in AA from suicide than from alcohol-related deaths. And for me, that was the place I went to. And when they're talking here about the remorse, horror, and hopelessness, they're talking about the cycle of alcoholism. And they're talking about that shame and that horrible feeling. You can't stand how you feel, but then your body and your, your body feels horrible and your brain tells you the mental obsession says, I need something to make this feel better. And so he grabbed alcohol and it would fix it because that was his solution. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I, I definitely contemplated suicide. I thought about where I would do it, how I would do it. I thought about the note I would leave. I, I envisioned all the people crying and funeral and how upset they <laughs> when would I was be. gone. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, and Bill says he doesn't have the courage to go through with it. And it's funny that, you know, as I think about it, um, you know, what's, I mean, really, it takes a lot of courage. Well, I guess courage is the right word to just continue in the, in the, in the agony of alcoholism and, and, and to, and to go through what that. What people don't get is it's the same thing. Yeah. Whether you try to kill your, so I tried taking my own life and I tried, I took 90 pills sober. Yeah. And I got my stomach pumped and I ended up in the hospital, but it doesn't matter whether you do that one moment or whether you just go back to drink because it's the same thing. It's going to kill you one way or another. Right. It's just either going to be slow or quickly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's amazing too, that, that I was just thinking about this because Bill, Bill's last drink was, I guess, just a couple of days ago on the, on the 11th of December. Yes. But, yes. Um, 1934. I, yeah. So 86 years. Right. Yeah. So but it, it's amazing. I was watching something on TV the other day about that period of time. I think it was about, about the Roosevelt's and it was uh, about the, the Great Depression. So if you think about it, Bill's a, Bill's a, a stockbroker and the markets are collapsing. And, and Bill's, Bill, you know, Bill's biggest problem isn't the stock market, not his portfolio, not his, right. his client's money. It's his alcoholism and he yes. can't see it. And he thinks, he thinks he's drinking for all that. And then he real, I think he realizes, you know, at this point, well, the end's near, right? The end's and near. And he judged his friends on page four when, you know, that not that day where the stock market crashed, he yeah. said he saw his friends jumping from towers of high finance and how, you know, how could they kill themselves? I'm going to go to the bar. That'll fix it. And I remember right. like, if you, I always hang out with you, you were my friend, we were just a party. You're like, my grandma died. I'd be like, Oh, that's rough. Do you still want to go out? And you'd be like, yeah, I'm like, right, cool. Let's go. Like I, I didn't care what was happening to anyone around me. And he right. only thought about killing himself because he couldn't stand being alone with himself. And then his solution came back. He remembered, I'm going to drink and that'll make me feel better. That was his solution. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. So exactly. let's get into the mind and body. Yep. So it's, it says the mind and body are, are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily open uh, or before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. There were flights. Okay, pause right there for, before you okay. get any farther. I yep. underline the morning terror and madness were on me because that's the mental obsession. Yes. That is, and you know, I heard someone say this and I, I'm kind of a stickler for words because I think they matter. I heard a woman say after a month of sobriety, a month of sobriety in a treatment center, no alcohol or drugs in her body. She got out and she said, her physical craving was so bad. And I, I said, no, it wasn't. That wasn't your physical craving. You cannot physically crave something that's not in your body. Your mental obsession was bad. And the reason right. why I think it's important to differentiate is because our solution to the mental obsession is the steps. The solution to the physical allergies, don't drink and go to meetings. That's not going to fix you when your real problem is your mind. Right. Exactly. A lot of people do confuse the, those two things. And I think it's really important. I like how you, you bring them together. The, the, you know, there's the physical allergy and the mental obsession. And it's those two things working against each other that really are the problem. My body is, so my mind is trying to kill my body and my body is trying to kill my mind. Mm. And the problem is, is it yep. was within us. And that's why, I mean, 
that's why I was a suicide person. And I get it because you truly believe that it's never going to get better. They talk about in the beginning of the book that we, we are suffering from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to me and you, someone that's new that comes here, we know it's not hopeless because we have a solution, but to them it is because they can't see another solution. And that's what I could relate to. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Okay, so he says there were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture were so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leap. A doctor came with heavy, heavy sedative. Next day, found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People feared for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or, or nothing when drinking, and I was 40 pounds underweight. Okay, a couple of things here. Um, I like triple underlined, people feared for my sanity, so did I. Did you fear for your sanity? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and you, yeah, I mean, it, I was like a car crash that people didn't want to watch, you know, what was happening to me. My, my family, my friends, they had... In my case, they had seen me, and in Bill's case too, they had seen me make attempts to get sober. And so they really didn't think it was gonna stick for me ever. In fact, they were, I think everybody was pretty well resigned to the fact that I would probably die drunk. So right, that's what um, happened to Bill, right? The doctor yes. told his wife, you should, this is how it's gonna end. It's gonna be either delirium tremens or we're gonna lock him up. And here's the thing, and I always want to point this out to people because I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I respect the singleness of purpose but both of our co-founders did drugs and they talk Absolutely. about it in the book. And so on page seven, it says the doctor gave him a heavy sedative. So the doctor's giving him drugs to manage his alcoholism. Yep. And then he mixes them together. And the, it says the combination landed me on the rocks. And I could relate to that because I was 19 when I got here and people would like judge young people. And they'd be like, why are you here so early? I spilled more than you drank and all that stuff. And the truth is because I did mix those two, it, I had what happened to him. I wrote down drugs hit him hard and fast. He lost the power of choice. This is late stage full bone alcoholism. He's fearing for his sanity. He cannot tell the difference between truth and false. And he can't, he can't function at this point. Yeah. I, I'm so glad you said that too, because I, uh, I, I too really respect the singleness of purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and Certainly, Mike, if I if I talked about all the drugs I had done, yeah. I'm sure I, I've actually read your story. So I know yeah. a little bit about your history. But, um, you know, I, I in my case, I'll, I'll just say it in my case, what landed what landed me in prison was I was drinking around the clock and I knew I needed to stop, but I, I could not overcome the physical allergy. And so I had a habit of going to the physician and getting a prescription for benzodiazepines. Yeah. And that's what I did. And unfortunately, I next day found me drinking gin and sedative, just like right. Bill. And I was taking the, the medication and I and was drinking, drinking and I went to, into a blackout. I don't of remember. Of course you did. How could you not? Right. right. I mean, right. but here's the thing that that is the dirty secret that no one talks about and that it's important to talk about in the rooms because we're so heavily talking about don't talk about this. But at the yeah. same time, we've got people dying from this. So remember, and I work in a pharmacy and alcohol has an NDC number, which is a national drug code because it's a drug. So alcohol is a drug in liquid form. There are pills that doctors, I mean, it's the number one way that people are dying today is because of all these prescribed drugs. And you and I both know 
We yeah. can go to any doctor, convince them with our manipulation today Absolutely. and get drugs that we want. I could go to the ER right now and pretend I have a, some sort of thing and get drugs. Yeah. But my yeah. responsibility is to my sobriety. So I have to be responsible for it when I go to the doctor and they want to give them to me. I have to say, I can't have that. Yeah. Well, I like what, what uh, Dr. Paul O wrote. wrote uh, yes. I heard him talk one time and he said, you know, alcoholics should not drink, use drugs. They, they use drugs alcoholically. Yes, I did too. <laughs> because when I just drink, I was passed out by nine o'clock because of, I drink so much. Right, um, right. Let's talk about the brother-in-law. This is Dr. Leonard Strong, the physician. Yes. Okay. So he says, my brother-in-law is a physician and through his kindness, and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared hydrotherapy. Valium. Oh, you only keep going? No, but that's Valium, just F, so FYI. Oh, oh, is it? Okay, I didn't yeah, know. Belladonna, no, and then this is Towns Hospital in New York City in 1933. So to give us a little understanding, this was a, a year before he got sober. Right, right. So yeah, so hydrotherapy and mild exercise help. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who is Dr. Silkworth, we yep. can find out later, who explained that those certainly selfish and foolish, I had been uh, seriously ill bodily and mentally. Right, that's the physical and the mental obsession. And for me, understanding what's wrong with me is important. I hate when I hear people in the room say, it doesn't matter if I'm an alcoholic, I am if I say I am. Well, it matters to me because if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life every day, I need to know what's wrong with me and I need to be able to explain it to new people. So I need to understand that my body can't process alcohol safely and my mind tells me it can't. And yeah. those two things are going to kill me. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the things that in my story, and I know other people in AA who, who've had this similar experience, I, I had a lot of people that were enabling me, employers, a lot of people enabling me. And the way they enabled me was they would send me off to treatment. But the problem is I wasn't serious when I got to treatment and I was certainly wasn't serious when I left. And I kept thinking, well, if I go to treatment, you know, then that'll solve the problem. But, you know, if you think about this story here, he's going to the hospital, he's getting cleared, he's getting the alcohol out of his system. He's getting Valium or medication. And he's he's thinks maybe that's going to solve the problem. And what we know, and there was no AA then, right? So there was no but, solution. He didn't right, even know about no anything. If yes. his drinking buddy Ebby didn't come, and Ebby, and and what's so beautiful about this reminder is that so the first woman that took me through the steps in the book and saved my life, she left after ten plus years of sobriety. So I've had a lot of sponsors. Four of them have drank after ten plus years of sobriety because oh, wow. if you don't do the work, you cannot stay sober. And Ebby, which was Bill's drinking buddy, is who brought him into the solution. And Ebby fought sobriety until the last two years of his life. So it doesn't matter how much time you have, what you're doing in and out of the rooms. You never know when you can be an example to somebody else. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I think, so he starts to, you know, at the hospital, the doctor starts to tell him a little bit about what, what he believes in the theory that alcohol is a, a combination, as we talked about, of this mental allergy or this uh, physical allergy and this mental obsession. Right. And, and, and so he's starting to get some self-knowledge he, and he, he thinks that's going to fix it. Like, right. Like but it's people. not, yes, you right. know, because you've been in and out of the rooms because self-knowledge is not our solution or our problem. Right. I've been to treatment centers 
like the worst treatment centers, like not pretty ones, like the worst ones where I remember a guy shuffling in paper slippers and he could quote the big book from like every single page. And I remember yeah. thinking, it doesn't matter what you know. It only matters what you do. You can know right. anything. If you don't apply it, that's the problem. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. All right. So he says, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself now, <laughs> I fared Right, that's what we were just talking about. So he's got the yeah. mental obsession. He didn't yeah. understand why it's like this, but now he gets it. Oh, I remember. It's this. I'm going to be okay. So keep going. Yeah. So, so he says, uh, understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope for three or four months. The goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Uh-oh. Right. <laughs> Not good. For Bill, Surely no. this was the answer. Bill's success is money. So if Bill's yeah. making money, he's okay. Yeah, exactly. And he says exactly what we were just talking about. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So this is right now for um, everyone that's listening. Right now, this is the summer of 1934. He's a few months away from getting sober. Yeah, there's a, there's a great line on, on page 39. It says, I think it says, the actual potential alcoholic with hardly an exception will be absolutely unable to stop drinking yes. on the basis of self-knowledge. Yes. And, Do you that know was, that's something that's crazy about that one? That's the one that they talk about being smashed into us. That's yeah. the one that my first sponsor memorized. And she would say it over and over and over. And when I watched her leaving, I said to her, where are you going? And she's like, I was just young. I was being dramatic. I know what to do if I get in trouble. And she's been gone. I mean, 20 plus, it's, it's been a long time. So it doesn't matter what we know. He knew what the problem, I wrote that on, on the side, understands the problem, but he only has information. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other thing, too, is and, and he just, you know, he's on the heels of a bad experience. His wife's about to lock him up. Yeah. He's, he's lost his career. You know, he's he's barely, you know, I, I don't know how long it was after his last drink here, but it was a short period of time. Right. But it's amazing how quickly we forget. And, and that insanity of the first drink kicks in and, and it talks about it. I think it's on page 24. You know, we forget how bad it was. We think this time it'll be different. Yeah. We feel justified by a feeling. We don't think at all. Or, you know, in my case, I know exactly what's going to happen and I do it anyway. Right. That's the effort, right? So yeah. for us, we were, we remember our brain records what alcohol does for us, not yeah. to us. Right. And it's bigger than all the other. I mean, I remember literally writing in a journal, Carly, remember on this date how you feel. And I would yeah. push it aside. You know, there's a guy, a speaker in the rooms. His name is Kip C. And I, I've always listened to speakers my whole sobriety. And he talked about being on a bus with his little daughter who was starving. And he went into the, um, have you ever heard Kip C? I, I have heard, I've heard of him. I don't think I can recall. Amazing. His story is yeah. amazing. But he talked about going into the convenience store with his daughter. She was crying because her stomach hurt so much because she was literally starving. And yeah. he, let, he said to her, pick out a sandwich. And he got wine. And then he opened up, he reached in his pocket and he only had enough money for one of them. And he had to, to put that, back the sandwich. Yeah. And it's just so like our disease is so it's so sad, right? It's so sad. So he's about to tell us what happened. So tell us what happens in the summer. But it was not. Yeah. And he says, but it was not for the frightful day came when I drank once more the curve of my declining moral and 
the bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens, or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. She and I wrote on the side what alcohol does to us in the end. It literally destroys our body. And, and I underline that in red. And the reason why I underline things in red, Keith, is because when I'm flipping through the book and I'm working with a new woman and she's like, oh, you're being dramatic or this is intense. I can easily see in red, like on this page, I've got people fear for my sanity, seriously ill bodily and mentally. It all end with heart failure. And I can be like, look, this is what our book says. I'm not right. being dramatic. This is just our, our facts. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you really see the velocity of the progression. And those of us that, that, that had our last drink uh, know that it really does accelerate and, and it's like a ski jump, just like he talks, we sort of fly off into oblivion. Right. It and, gets um, worse. Yeah. Yeah. And poor Lois, you know, has a front row seat to all this madness. And too, she's so. believing, believing, believing the lie that it's going to get better because he convinces her because that's what we do. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, what You're else? She would soon have to give me over. Yeah. So she would soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum, which is really interesting. I think you were, you, you brought this up earlier is, you know, what they used to do to us is uh, they would lock us up in an insane asylum. That's yeah. that, that was the only thing they could do. He talked about how they, that uh, Dr. Silkworth went. So Dr. Silkworth was in charge of a drug and alcoholic um, center, right? a center for drug and alcohol addiction. And yeah. he talked about, Bill talked about how once he found the solution, they they went through and they pulled people out. Like imagine them like shuffling in the windows and like drooling and stuff. And they pulled us out and they said, you, you, you come with me. Cause they yeah. knew that those were the alcoholics and they took them off of their drugs that they were giving them to be silent. And they gave them this solution and they left free. Like, that would have been me. I would have been locked up for alcoholic insanity, 100%. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So then it, he's coming to, to the acceptance of this. And, and, and those, of, those of us that, that uh, well, when I first read this, this part of the book, I thought, oh, this is terrible. But now I, I can see this and I'm like, oh, good. It's coming. coming he's, right. he's coming to some point it's of It's always willingness. darkest before the dawn. He's about to tell us that. Exactly. It's dark night of the soul. So he says, they did not need to tell me. I knew and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities and my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was- Will you pause for a second? Yeah. So I underlined was cornered at last in red and I wrote my sobriety date because that was for me, that yeah. was my moment of being cornered at last. And I have written down the gift of desperation. Um, one of the places I got sober, they talked about this gift of desperation, that it's a gift for us about being so desperate and tired and out of plans. And yep. when we're just desperate enough is when, like you were talking about earlier about your story, when we're finally willing, to, you're like, fine, what do I have to do, right? right? And I wrote down that I came so close to an alcoholic death. Like for me, my sobriety date would have been the day I died. It was either, I was either gonna die or get sober. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In fact, when I, sometimes when I talk, I will sometimes introduce myself uh, with my sobriety date, instead of my sobriety date, I'll, I will say I, I had my last drink on because I really want to remember that feeling that you were just describing. That's yep. the one I need to remember. Yeah, I don't remember much about the first day, but I remember that last drink. I know sure. that it was not a fun day. I can, I can <laughs> yeah, tell you that. Right. <laughs> 
Okay, so he says, now I was to plunge into the dark, joining the endless procession of sots who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I give, not give to make amends, but that was over now. He's hopeless at this point. And he's being real dramatic. Right. And now right. we're about to look at step one, which is, I think that these next two paragraphs is the best example of what step one is in our whole book. Yeah, it really is. So he says, no, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched all around, around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed and alcohol was my master. Just so you know, um, something I do when I work with new people is I turn that little teeny paragraph into questions and I make them answer them. So I'll, yeah. I'll say like, were you lonely? Did you feel despair? Did you feel self-pity? Did you feel like you were in quicksand? Were you overwhelmed? Was alcohol your master? Because I need to keep reminding them those questions so they can see, do you see this in your own life? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, in my case, I just had to be absolutely convinced that as, as we were talking about earlier, that the delusion I was like other people or presently maybe had to, to be smashed. smashed. Right. Absolutely. And ultimately it's ourselves. Like it doesn't matter what anyone else, it doesn't matter what the police believed or your family believed or your loved ones. When you look in the mirror and you lay your head on the pillow at night, do you know your truth? Because yeah. if you don't know your truth, it doesn't matter what anyone else knows. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. Some people used to tell me they, or, you know, well, at that time people would say, well, you're, you're just in denial. I was really never in denial about, the fact that I was alcohol. Well, I should say, I didn't really know what an alcoholic was. I didn't know those two pieces that we were just talking about, the mental obsession and the yeah. physical compulsion. But my denial was I could get away with it one more time. That's what I, that's the- You thought this denial. time was going to be different, right? Yeah. And you know, my friend, um, Jack, who I just did an episode with, he, what he says about the mental obsession is my favorite. He says that the mental obsession is the most reasonable sounding voice in his head. That it's not like a neon sign that's like, go Keith and drink that you go get drink. You know, like it's yeah. calm and quiet. It's like, you know, you're probably okay. Like it's going to be like, it's not that big of a deal or you, or now it's like, you're tired. You don't need to meditate or you'll do this later. You don't need to send an inventory. It's reasonable. It's not glaring because we would know, like we would know that that's bad. Right. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I'll just say one more thing, too, which is I think we sometimes do people a disservice by we say, oh, just stay sober one day at a time. And that's really important to, to think about practicing the AA program one step at a time. But I know in my case, I'll just speak for myself. I had to be I had to know I, I was done for good. Like right. as long as I didn't, as long as I thought in the future, I might be able to drink again, it wasn't ever going to work. Those are reservations, right? They talk yeah. about, we can't, so I love that you brought that up. So I never wake up in the morning and go, God, I think I'd like to be sober today. I made the decision that I'm going to be sober for the rest of my life. I work the program yeah. and face life one day at a time, yeah. but I don't get, stay sober one day at a time. I, I am committed to this for life because I have a lot to lose if I don't. But yeah. one day at a time for me is how I manage my living, right? How I live my life. Yes. And I love that you said this, that use the word decide. And, and I say this with guys I sponsor is, you know, it talks about losing the power of choice when it comes to drink. And, and I don't ever recover that choice, but I don't like, I don't wake up in the morning and choose not to drink today. I just don't do that. I make a decision exactly what you just said that I'm going to, I decide, which decide from the Latin root means to kill off. 
So I kill off. I never knew that. I love that. It means to kill off. Means to kill off. So when you decide, you kill off the alternative. So I kill. I kill I off. I love that. I have to write that down. Yeah, that's decide is like homicide. Decide like uh, murder, right? Yeah, like pesticide, homicide, right. suicide. Decide it means to, is kill, to off. kill off. I love yeah. that. So I kill off the alternative. And I the alternative love is it. I, I love I can, words. I can choose to drink. I can't choose to drink. I don't choose to drink. I love that. I, yep. Thank you so much. All right, keep okay. going, trembling. Yep, trembling, I stepped from the hospital, a broken man, fear sobered me for a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, 1934, which by the way, we just passed Armistice so Day. November 11th, right? Yep, so I was earlier. off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere, shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. Uh, and here's the good part. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I soon was to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is indescribably more wonderful as time passes. I love that part so much. And what's so awesome is he didn't know it. He says, in reality, that was the beginning. So he had to look back and go, oh, that was my beginning. But while you're going through that dark night of the soul, like you referred to earlier, you think it's the end. What's so cool about being recovered alcoholics, encountering broken ones that are unrecovered, is we can see this is a blessing. Like you are actually at this pivotal place in your life where you get to choose, do I want to die an alcohol death or do I want to choose, decide to kill off that alternative like you just said and choose another way. But we can only see it because we're sane and they right. can't see it. But now he looks back and he goes, that was my beginning, right? And when it says I was to know, I underline to know because I want to remind the new girl and the new guy that you know happiness, peace and usefulness, but you don't live with it like on a constant basis because then you've got them and they're like, why am I not constantly happy? And we're like, no right. one's promising that. Like it's called life. But you're right. going to know it. You're going to know it and you're going to experience it. And I don't experience it, those fourth dimension, until I do the steps. Yeah. Yeah. I kept, uh, I, yeah, exactly. Well, well put. I, I kept looking for a feeling inside when I, like, let's face it, early sobriety sucks. <laughs> and it's hard to get a good feeling. Um, but I love I never, that you said that. I literally stayed sober sometimes just so I never had to redo my first year because it was so unbelievable. Oh, yeah. It was, it's hard. But, you know, I mean, I look back now and I haven't been sober a lot of years, but but the, the transformation that has occurred through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, the work that has been done inside of me, uh, I, I'm just not the same guy. And, and, and thank God, because if I was the same guy, and just not drinking, oh, I, I wouldn't want to be that guy. That's the promise. They tell us we're going to be on different footing. I always joke around and I say that, you know, that I was told that the old Carly has to die in order for the new Carly to live, that I couldn't go on a road trip with the old Carly. I would kick her out of the car and be like, you are a horrible human being and you need to leave. Like, it yeah. was not just drinking. I just was such a, like, a vacuum of suck. And I just... I, you're so right. I had to start over and I love, I'm going to really, I love that word decide. Now you totally changed everything for me because I had to kill off the alternative. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This was awesome. Thank you so much. Did you want to finish anything or are you good right here? Well, um, well, um, 
Well, this gets into into Abby's story, which is yeah. almost a, a a whole separate. It thing. is a whole separate. I think this is perfect, Keith. I love what yeah. you just brought us. I mean, what a great reminder. And you know what? I need this because as hard and bleak as everything feels right now, we need to remember that we've been to way darker places, and we have a solution and a responsibility to bring some light where everyone else is having a hard time. Yeah, and you know, I I was I. I I, I gave a talk a, about a week ago and I was, I mentioned this is that, you know, I, of, of all the people that I know who are, are dealing with, you know, in some cases a, a, a loss, like a, a family member or sickness, or certainly, you know, losses of jobs or difficulties and, and, you know, and everything else that happens in the normal course of life. Um, the, the people that have seemed to fare the best during this pandemic have really been, um, frankly, those people who who have a twelve step program and are able to practice it. They seem to be faring better than than other people. And well, so they promise I, us in the book that we will be able to face calamity with serenity. Yeah, yeah, right. And we yeah. do. We get to. Right, right. So yes, I mean, thank thank God. Can you God. tell us um, how to get in touch with your? Is your home group virtual right now? Um. It, <laughs> Yes, it is. Although, <laughs> honestly, I've been attending, like you, I've been looking for so many other meetings. I have really enjoyed meeting people from all over the Me world. Me too. I, I, like, I agree. I mean, I hope that this is not something that goes away after COVID does, because I'm really digging, like, getting to hear new voices. And yes. Because, you know, we get stale and we get stuck and we hear someone speak and they're like, oh, here they're going to talk about their dad or whatever right. it is. And when you meet new people, you open up your mind, just like when I would travel in AA and I would go, so I would always be excited. And now I get to do it from my, my living room. Yes, exactly. I love it. I just, I love hearing, hear, as you say, you know, uh, di different people, new stories. I mean, I've, I, 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 I've listened to meetings in the, in the UK and Canada and uh, uh, South Africa the other day. Where do day. you find all the meetings? Is it like a, a place for like Zoom meetings? Like a meeting? There's a few Facebook groups that I that I participate. You'll have to send me a message because I want to find them. I'm ready to explore. Yeah. Oh, there's there's a few of them that post like there must be a dozen or two dozen meetings a day. So I'll, I'll send you a link to those. I'm excited. Thank you yep. so much for coming on. This was awesome. You're so welcome. Thank you Be for safe. giving me the chance. Be safe. Okay. Have Take a care. good one. Bye bye. If you'd like to join us on Thursday nights for North Star Big Book meeting, we would love to have you. 7 p.m. Eastern a Zoom meeting and the information is in the episode notes. Have a great one. For any listeners who would like to go deeper into my story, check out my memoir, Seconds and Inches, available in paperback, audio, or digital. Regardless of how we find ourselves in the world of divorce, the one thing we have complete control over is how we behave from here on out. We have two choices. One is to remain stuck in the stories, the anger and pain. And the other is to take a breath, adjust our sail to the wind, and work harder than ever before to create a new story for our children, for ourselves, and for the world around us. It's your choice, your work, but I'll be in your corner. Welcome to In Your Corner Divorce Podcast. My name is Carly Israel, and I am your host. On Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 
iTunes, and IndieBound. Remember, we get to write this next chapter for our kids, for ourselves, and for the world around us. Have a great day.